Welcome to the Open IC, the show where we talk to the movers and shakers in M&A, the teams behind the deals and how the deals really went down. This show is brought to you by Fintan.io, the hiring and project platform for M&A and strategy professionals. I'm your host, Toby Liebsch. Today, I'm talking to Sasha Beslik. Sasha is probably the most influential man when it comes to sustainable finance. He set up Sweden's most accomplished sustainable investment fund for Nodia in 2011 and has since gathered a reputation as the go-to man for evaluating sustainable investments. Hi, Sasha. Hi, hi, and thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. When I look at your social accounts, um, one, one question that I keep asking myself is, are you an angry man? <laughs> no, I'm not. And I, I used to get, uh, lately, I'm, I'm getting these questions from various uh, people and the contacts that I have. No, I'm not. Uh, I'm more getting uh, frustrated and disappointed with the fact that not much is really happening in the space. Yeah. You have to take in, into account that I've been working with this for 20 years. So, yeah. you know, I've been hearing the stories for a very, very long time. So I'm getting a bit of a tired of them. <laughs> well, you understand. Today, I want to actually jump a bit into into your background and actually what got you into into the whole field of sustainable finance, um, also a bit of your personal background and jump a bit into the future because, of course, that's like you're, you're riding the wave really early. And as a matter of fact, I actually saw that in 2018, uh, there's a, a Wired article about you that says in 2018 that you were the, one of the first bigger accounts on Twitter that retweeted the photo of your of your country women, uh, Greta Thunberg's yes. strike. Yes. And and they pretty much imply in that article that, that your tweet led to Greta's movement gaining traction. So how much credit do you give yourself for that? No, 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 no. I think Greta <laughs> is, is uh, you know, good enough and large and, and global enough to, to reach out with, uh, with the messages that she has. And I was just one of the people who saw that very early on. So I'm glad that I could help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sasha, I, w I want to start a bit with your with your background story. That's okay with you, because I find it's very much connected also to um, to the person you are today and 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 the way you kind of see sustainable finance. Because you're actually a, a war refugee, right? So yes. so in the Bosnian War, you and I said you 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 fled, and um, then apparently also got almost executed along the way, which was yes. kind of a, an interesting side note um, in that, and then eventually you made it to Sweden. Um, how much impact did that career, that did that experience have on your later career? I think the experiences during the war made me uh, maybe prioritize uh, things that are a bit more real, you know, uh, uh, very sort of a both feet on the ground. Uh, understanding what it means to, uh, when people make uh, uh, decisions for others and for themselves, uh, I think it made me appreciate life in a completely different way. But it also made me a bit more um, not a fearless, but, but more like, okay, I've been given a second chance, uh, and I want to use that for a benefit, not only financial, economic, uh, egoistic benefit on myself. I want to do something that can make uh, life better for other people. So yeah. that was, I mean, it is in many ways has impacted the way how I reason and also how I think about many of these things. Yes. Yeah. 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 And. After, after you fled to you, you went to Sweden and then you eventually studied journalism and economics. Yes. Um, and eventually you started working as a journalist actually in Warsaw yes. with the Red Cross. So the journalistic aspect, I get that, of course, you know, having that kind of humanistic background. But where did the interest for economics come from? 
Yeah, it came very quickly, you know, uh, after the, uh, after I sort of arrived in Sweden and start understanding how the uh, market economy, uh, economies, uh, societies were organized because I grew up in a, in a more of a social quasi social type of the economy, uh, yeah. which was more state governance, state control. And also very quickly understanding that interlink between the economy and the, the changes in society. So for me, very early on, I understood that, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, understanding economics is actually understanding how modern, uh, market led economies are functioning and, yep. and journalism was more of a, I would call it more as a therapy session because I went to work yep. as a war correspondent in many different places. So it was a more of a way for me to, uh, work around some of the, uh, you know, experiences I had during the war. And it was very useful because I've learned uh, early on that, you know, it's all about people it's all about connecting yep. people and it's all, uh, all about understanding, you know, what drives people. Yeah. Yeah. And also about being in the field. because I mean, that experience that you had, yeah. Yeah. And I can tell you, I mean, this is something that I've used in a, for the last 20 years in the financial industry and this approach that I have, it's a bit different from what most of the, you know, sustainable ESG analysts and people would yeah, do yeah. is that I would, uh, go out into the field and actually meet companies, meet people affected, you know, go to the ground, yeah. spend time with them, because that will give me a completely different insight when then reading the ESG reports, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. 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 So you said, just mentioned that the journalism was kind of your, your vacation, almost <laughs> your vacation of, from the real world, which is to be honest, a bit ironic saying that you covered war, uh, war crimes in your journalistic career, but, um, you, you actually then moved into the banking industry. So we just covered your background, but, but that move eventually led you to, to join, um, Nordia, right? So, so tell me about the time you made that switch from being a journalist to moving into the banking industry. I mean, look, uh, just a small correction. I said it was more like a therapy for me. Uh, it yeah. was not, uh, it was not walking a park to go to these different places yeah. and report from, from, from yeah. different conflicts. But after some time I got kids very early and, uh, I realized that my exposure in these different areas, it's probably not going to be good for either me or my family. Yeah. So I, uh, decided to, uh, I was offered a job for a uh, very strangely, I got a job offer from one of the biggest oil companies in the world, British Petroleum, to start working for them, uh, yeah. as the, you know, um, head of a social impact assessment for one of the biggest pipelines at the time, Tbilisi, mm. Baku, Chehan, BTC pipeline. And I spent a year and a half in, in, uh, Georgia and Azerbaijan and parts of Turkey, yeah. uh, in the field, uh, in the villages, you know, talking to, uh, villagers negotiating about yeah. the impacts they had and that. Eventually I got the job offer to work for, at the time, the first retail ethical investor in the Nordics called Banco Funds, which was owned by ABN Amber Asset Management. Yeah. And, uh, I worked as a head of ethical analysis and, and, uh, for a couple of years, and then I was seconded to, uh, ABN Amber in Amsterdam and I worked as a global head of engagements and then. Yeah. 2009, uh, I joined Nodia and I was the first person hired basically. Uh, on a fairly senior level to, uh, to set up and develop all the work that, uh, was related to you see, so funds, product analysis, you know, models, hire people, build up the teams, all of that. Okay. 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 Yeah. Let's, let's dive a bit into that because I mean, you started the, to complement investments with information on ESG related topics. I know back then, 2009, 2010, 
like it sounds so obvious, but back then nobody was talking about that stuff, right? No, I mean, obviously no. we had, yeah, we had known about that. It's important for a long time, but nobody was talking about it. Why, why did it actually interest you so much to jump specifically into ESG? I mean, look, the, 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 the shift from, you know, working with the social issue and environmental issues in the field in, in Georgia and Azerbaijan, and then I was in a yeah. couple of projects for World Bank, uh, between the jobs, uh, in, in, uh, Zambia, in Nigeria, in Angola, uh, it made me understand that when working on these projects, you understand that the economic and financial players actually set the roots. And if you mm. sort of, uh, manage to to uh, change and improve the rules you can actually accomplish many of these things faster yeah, so yeah. the shift from the field into ethical investments and then to esg was not that far what is different is that from 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 the outset when i started it was more about you know not investing in uh, tobacco alcohol weapons and stuff like that yeah but it then very gradually shifted into the fact that externalities i mean es and g issues if that companies generate you know in their business yeah was having a financial impact. And that was the big shift. That was the change. So when I start doing this back in, you know, eight, nine, uh, it was very virgin space. Uh, we were called hippies and this was not, uh, you know, something that financial industry will, uh, will ever work with, or it will be a niche and so on. And, yeah. uh, but you know, now when you look at that, you see the entire world is working with that. So, uh, I think that niche has expanded into being something very big. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if you've seen the movie, uh, Thank You for Smoking. Uh, I unfortunately have not seen that one, no. Yeah, you might have heard about it. So the plot is kind of, there's this group of, of lobbyists. Um, and I think it's 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 a, it's a tobacco lobbyist, a pharma lobbyist, and I think a nuclear lobbyist. Okay. And they're kind of just meeting up in this bar um, every, every week and they're kind of talking about how they're messing up society quite a bit and they're just breaking in cash. And the whole plot of the movie, sorry to spoil it a bit, but is that... Um, Suddenly, the kids of, of one of the, I think, of tobacco um, lobbyists, the kids start to get quite a significant influence on him because he's kind of thinking, okay, that's the future. And I think his daughter starts smoking or something like that. Yeah. Okay, love to get that. Um, your kids must be like, I, I guess, like 10 ish now. No, my kids are big. I have, uh, I got the kids very early on. So I got my yeah. first kid, 95, second, 98, oh, wow. and uh, 2000. So my kids are ages 26 to 21. So yeah. I don't have uh, small kids anymore. No. Of course, yeah. I mean, of course, you're uh, moving in from away from being a war journalist uh, into the banking sector. You just attributed that also to your kids. Yeah. Um, the environmental aspect, that's, you didn't really attribute that to your kids, which I find interesting. So like looking back at it, many people, when they move into environmental causes or, or becoming environmental activists, not to call you an activist. No, 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 say. I understand what you mean. Yeah. I understand what you mean. Yeah. 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 But, um, so many people have like, they obviously attribute to their kids. Um, so, so how much does that, does it mean to you? Or do you talk to your kids about that topic? Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, over the years, they've understood what I'm trying to do and we have a very open, um, uh, and I would say, uh, sometimes, uh, a uh, very dynamic discussion about what needs to be done. My kids have chosen another uh, professions, uh, although my middle son is is uh, more towards, uh, he's a journalist, but uh, the, the rest is trying to uh, to do what they find interesting and important for them. Yeah. Uh, what I've tried to learn my kids is to see this as a systemic issue, not as a symbolic issue. Yeah. That's a very important thing for me because you know, going around and scaring people uh, with no-nos uh, instead of trying to see how we can improve things on a systemic level is something that I've yeah. been, you know, trying to, to preach for a very long time. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually a shift because I'm, I'm I'm born in 91, so I'm like a bit, bit older than you, than you, than the oldest kid. But um, that's also a shift that I've really seen happen in the last, let's say, 10 years. So while 10 years ago, um, I, you know, I, I went vegan. I started to like really think about sustainability, not flying anymore. You know, the Fluchtscham, yeah, yeah. also like a Swedish thing, right? Fliegscam, um, you call yeah. it exactly flight shaming and, and all these kind of topics, right? So that was a big part of me. And I was really always talking about, you know, from a liberal perspective about the almost libertarian perspective about the yeah. individuum's uh, responsibility for society and how every everything you buy in the supermarket has an influence. And I still believe that, but at the same time, working more in the financial field, you really notice that the systemic issues are, are really the, um, the topic behind it. And I think that's also why many more people... Uh, that are coming traditionally from ESG background are moving into finance, right? Because that's where, where, where things happen. Yes. And uh, yeah, I mean, you call it the money tree. <laughs> yes, 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 I did. I call it the money tree because it is a systemic issue. As you said, uh, I mean, there are various ways into the ESG world, but I think if you really want to make effort and if you want to make impact, the financial toolbox is the best one because it's global, it's 24-7, uh, uh, It's it reaches all parts of the world that we are operating in. And you know, if we can change the financial toolbox, if we can use it in another way, it could have an effect yeah. that is, you know, far reaching. Yeah, absolutely. When you implemented that at, at uh, Nordea, so the first, I, I call it the first sustainable investment. You probably weren't the first, but the first yeah. kind of one that was award winning uh, yeah. in a way. I, I suppose not everyone agreed with that shift. Oh, right? goodness. No, no, no. Uh, you have to uh, bear in mind it. This is, I think, something that many people working in the industry still experience. Yeah. You still have to fight uphill. I mean, I had a lot of internal fights, a lot of pushbacks, a lot of people that were really thinking that this is just something that uh, we're doing because, uh, you know, we want to please parts of the market. Uh, yeah. It was not for everybody. So it was a lot of a pushback. But then eventually when you start delivering results, which we did, then the things, the perspective changes. Yeah. 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 But, but tell me about that pushback a bit more. Was that was it more within the company or or no? It was a, it was most. I mean, look, most of us working in the ESG industry in, in the financial space, we we I think most of us experienced this uh, tremendous pushback internally. Our our yeah. biggest challenges are not external; they are most uh, yeah. most of the time internal, because you have different agendas, you have different priorities, you have uh, different powers in the organizations, yeah. and you know, for me, it was. Uh, uh, you know, continuous fight between uh, uh, why are we, uh, why do we need to do this for all of our products? Why can't mm. we just have a couple of them? Uh, why is, uh, uh, why does this need to have a priority? What is yep. this with climate footprint of the funds? Why do we need that? Clients don't want that. Yep. You know, all of these kind of things that you have to bridge, you know, step by step. So I'm a very persistent person. So I, I, I really, you know, <laughs> I never give up. So I, um, you know, I was walking these 10 years and, and taking the organization with me and building the capacity. And at the time, I think uh, when I left, uh, that was a well uh, oil machinery uh, that is actually still yeah. one of the leading in in, uh, in the European context. So it's, it, it was really an uh, interesting journey. Yeah. And as a direct result of your, of your work, and I actually want to dive into the um, framework that you used later a bit um but as a direct result of your work um you actually or not or you actually pulled out of a couple of quite significant investments i think uh, especially airbus and yeah. lockheed martin and a couple of other big ones right yeah yeah i mean look there are two angles to it most of the uh what you usually see what media picks up are the things when we do a big sort of uh walkouts from investments yeah. but 
but my, some of my biggest achievements are actually construction of some of these products to identifying companies that are really good. So you have both angles in this. Yeah. You have the one angle, which is a negative. And I, you know, I, some of the things that I did in, for, for instance, in India, uh, I, I, uh, discovered a huge, uh, pharmaceutical, uh, pollution of the water streams in two, uh, Indian states with uh, millions yeah. and millions of people living. Then I had to spend some time in prison. Uh, and then, uh, I managed to get these companies, yes, do, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Pharmaceutical companies to actually do something. So, I mean. The pullouts of the companies, the walkouts from the holdings, it's not an easy thing, but, yeah. but it was, you know, in a Nordic region, when, when you somehow, when you have investment policy and when you have people with you on it, then it's easy to, to, to sort of execute on it because people are with you. Yeah. Uh, and of course that, that has stirred up a lot of questions and a lot of competition was looking at it, thinking, well, what the hell are we doing? But on the other hand, we got a lot of business for it because many clients were coming to us saying that you guys are really sort of doing this properly and you're mm. believing in it and you are delivering. So it's very yeah. important. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the impact on, on the bank, but what was the impact on your career? Because it kind of reads like that really kickstarted everything for you. I think the, the, the kickstart for my career was this, this uh, job that I got in, in the beginning of Nadia, when I started working for Nadia to construct these you know, construct the processes to do, uh, actually develop the analysis model, write the first ESG handbook yeah. for investments, all of these things. But then of course, the, my stubbornness in terms of that, I'm not afraid of saying what I think, yeah. and I'm not afraid of stepping up and saying, this is what I like, and this is what I don't like. It's linked to my personality. And I think that was very, uh, in, in, you know, that served me a lot, but it also punished me a lot in my career. So if I could get, <laughs> keep my tongue and my mouth shut from time to time, I'll probably gain a, 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 a more things, but it's just a part of my personality. I like to say what I think. Yeah. Yeah. So sustainability is often perceived as needing to be holistic. Um, I also know from my own experience with, with things like life cycle assessments that yeah. it's, it's not always black and white, right? You can, you can analyze something one way and then you can shift the analysis a bit and then suddenly yeah. something else. Yeah. But, but what makes an investment sustainable or what, what is your framework over what makes an investment sustainable? I mean, investment is sustainable when it leads to tangible, what I mean by that tangible material improvements for people that are using the product or service or for the nature in a positive way. It's not having negative, adverse negative impact on the nature. So you have this, you know, no harm principle, uh, the, the carbon footprint of the product, uh, you know, uh, life cycle perspective of the product in terms of mm. the reuse and, and where the, how can product can be mended over time and all of these things. But unfortunately, you know, if you look at it from, from, from a holistic perspective, there are very few truly sustainable products out there because the way how we price externalities is not really reflected in the way how we develop mm. products. So yep. it is, you know, most of the products that we have, even those that are called sustainable are to a certain extent, there is a discount in them yeah. because we, we sort of, we want them to be sustainable and we yeah. do a lot of things, but in practice, you know, 70% of the energy in the world is coming still from the fossil industry yeah. and externalities are not accounted for. So I think my definition for you, what, what is sustainable product? I think that going back to that, it is a product that serves, you know, people that are using the product, but also has a minimal impact on the environment. Mm. That, that's sort of a, that's how I would define it. Okay. And there's no kind of number you would put on it. It's really like looking at it holistically. 
Yeah, it's difficult to, to give you a number, but because the, uh, as I told you, the externalities are not priced in. So right now yeah. we are still, we are still operating sustainability, uh, in the same vacuum as we operate uh, our economic system. Externalities are taken away. Now, yeah. what you have seen over the last 20 years and now with the climate movement and everything yeah. is that we have taken one externality, which is a CO2 emission, and we're trying to push it into the vacuum room. Yeah into the sort of a chamber where the economic system is, but you uh, can also see what, how much resistance that's created because yeah. it is shifting the sort of a inside the vacuum yeah. sort of a room. It's shifting the air a bit. So it, it's, everybody wants to sort of have it their own way. Yeah. Uh, so that, that will be my response to that. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose you're referring a bit to, to, uh, let's say carbon, uh, carbon offset licenses and these kind of, uh, little plays, right? Yes. Offset, uh, but also the, uh, you know, uh, what is also interesting is that many companies are, for instance, can, you know, uh, account for a positive impact CO2 emissions that are generated by product X, but there is also downside to the product, how the product has been transported, produced, or how much yeah. energy has been used for that. So you have to net this out. And right now we don't have a net numbers. We have just a gross yeah. numbers. Yeah. So that's something that development will, I mean, in the next five years, you'll see more of a, what I call them, the net climate funds that where you can actually see that yeah. how much are companies netting, you know, on the, on one side and how much yeah. they're saving on another side. Yeah. And I mean, of course there's, uh, when we talk about these externalities for a second, of course there are different um, methodologies right now that are kind of in the narrative about how we can fix that. The EU is currently working on, on the CSRD, so the new corporate sustainability yeah. kind of reporting directive. Uh, of course, carbon tax is a big topic that's being thrown around all over the place. And that's all like that, that, that different cap and trade systems and all these kind of topics yeah. that nobody's really sure, like how can we implement it on a European level, for example, without having, you know, having a disadvantage. Um, yeah. Another topic, um, that's being thrown around in this context, um, is um, next next to it's the carbon tax and, and CSRD are also um, yeah other kind of sustainable ETFs for instance you know that that kind of are supposed to trickle trickle down at some point. Um, what are what are these? What are the biggest kind of levers that we have on a political scale actually to to work with these externalities? I think you know when you talk about these things about carbon tax, uh, about uh, these different types of offsetting things. It's, it's actually doing the, we should, it's, it's addressing the marginal things in the economic system because it's, yeah. it's addressing the, the consequences, not the, the sort of uh, the causes. And I think what, what, what could be done, what this, that discussion has been going on in the European Union is to address how do we change the responsibility that is stipulated in the corporate charters of the companies, you know, yeah. because right now the, the corporate charters in Germany or in Sweden or in London or in us are basically written in the same way. So they, they, they actually stipulate how company operates and what the company is responsible for. And, yeah. and if you don't have a corporate charters where it's, that are defined in a way that the, the board of the directors and the CEO have responsibility for impacts caused by company on yeah. planet and people. Uh, then everything else becomes, it's very marginal. So it's, it's basically at the will of the companies, depending on the market, depending yeah. on the maturity stage. So that's one thing that I think we could do. And that's where the politicians really could make a big difference if they do that. Yeah. And if they put their act together, the second is of course, the one that we've been, you know, in the financial industry, we've been screaming for that for the last 10 years, that's the price of carbon. So, you know, with the pricing system, 
But with the agreed sort of a level playing field for the price, you get completely different ballgame because then yeah. within a month, we can integrate, you know, price in our, in, into our DCEF models, uh, discounting cash flow models. Yeah. And then it's done, you know, it's over. Yeah. It's basically, then we know this company is not going to make it. This one is going to make it. And this is how it works, but we are not there. And, uh, th that's the, that's the challenge that we have. So I think. You know, starting yeah. with the underlying systems and then going back to the education. I mean, look, we have, we are examining, uh, you know, millions of economists every year, financial analysts, and they are all basically learning the whole system. Um, yeah. they are not reading anything about how to price externalities. Yeah. So they, this is also one of the things politicians through the national legislation could change the uh, educational modules because it will be easier to have these people educated from beginning about this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but when externalities are so difficult to, to put your finger on, um, I mean, you, at the end of the day, you still make decisions based on sustainability, right? For your, yeah. for your funds, but how do you actually then, yeah. How do you compare different investments? I mean, you have to make a decision at some point, nothing is sustainable as Patagonia says, right? So, so do you just choose lesser evil? I think the, the, it's, it's in, in the, you have a, you know, absolute and relative sort of approach. So on the absolute level, if you look at the companies, there is a lot of improvements for all of them. But then if yeah. you put all the absolutes into a relative box, you get the complete, then you compare them with each other in yeah. each sector. So what you basically try to do, as you said, is within the sector, you try to invest in companies that have most, what I call uh, sustainability potential, yeah. most leverage in their own sort of operations or through their products. So that will probably be the most honest answer is that Yes, you're trying to change, you're trying to, to choose the less, you know, less bad companies. But actually, if you look at it from another perspective, you're trying to identify companies that when they improve their business operations, their products could give you a financial leverage. Yeah. So yeah. that, that's basically how it does, how it works. And then of course, what you do is that nowadays you have a lot of avoidance of, you know, coal and oil and now gas is green and uh, nuclear is green. So you will see <laughs> a lot of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And right, I, I, I just read a report uh, on, on, on the US market where the American uh, oil and gas companies are certifying gas as green from a perspective of being responsibly extracted. So it's very, you know, it's, we are living in a very, very strange sort of a time in terms of, you yeah. know, uh, uh, responsible, uh, gas because it's extracted in a, in a responsible way. And people sort of see that as mm. a certificate that it's good. So, you know, uh, everything is possible and everything is impossible. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. Exactly. Um, Saja, one of the, um, main hypotheses you, um, state in your book, uh, the money tree is that sustainable investments are long-term more successful. Yeah. Now I don't see my sustainable ETFs outperform the S and P 500 right now. <laughs> Why I, is that? I, I think it depends. And, and the thing is, there is a, there is a cave out in that one, which says, uh, you know, I think they do, but depends how they are done. And I think the, uh, you know, one thing is certain is that if they are truly, if this ESG investments, sustainable investments are done in a really good way. 
The result of these investments will over time lead not only to improve companies, managing better their people, supply yeah. chains, you know, all of that, but it will also create stability for these companies to provide better returns. Now, uh, everything depends how it's done. What I think is very dangerous is to look as you do and many others, and I do it as well. I'm looking at the performance of ESG funds basically every sing single day to see that some of these funds that are flagged as ESG, you know, because they are mirroring those different markets or different indices, uh, indices are, uh, really in, in a sense, not sustainable, you know, because they are not, they don't have that objective. And that leads us into discussion about article eight and nine and SFDR and EU and yeah, all of that. Yeah. So the only, uh, you know, within the article nine universe of products that you will have on the market today maybe fraction 10% is really interesting from investment point of view. Yeah. Because most of it is marketing. Yeah. 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 Are you more of a revolutionist or an evolutionist? <clears throat> I'm somewhere in between, to be honest. I think the evolution of going back, I mean, if you, if I go back 20 years and see where we are today, I mean, it's great. Uh, have we, uh, moved the needle too much? Not really. Uh, do we need a kick sort of a start in terms of the revolution in in the way how the clients just basically say, stop doing these things, allocate capital in another way. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I'm somewhere in between. And that is also the reason why I'm a bit frustrated in a way that the markets are really not, there's a lot of talk, a lot of hot air, you know, there are a lot of words out mm -hmm. there and I think blah, we are, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we are fooling ourselves a bit because it's, it's not going to help us because if we don't deliver. ESG sustainable improvements through the investments, the people will look at us in five years time and say, okay, guys, you, you are, you're going to lose all the credibility you have because yep. it's not, it's not really, uh, what you said it should be. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say we have, so our, our audience is mostly finance professionals and professionals specifically. Um, and, and they often make, of course, investment decisions. Um, now few of them are really deep ESG experts. Now, at the same time, I know many of them, especially the younger generation, want to look at that topic more closely. Now, if someone's not an expert on the topic and has the time to do field trips to Kenya and into, into, into the Congo, how um, can they start to maybe implement a little bit of ESG-related topics into their investments? Yeah, I think it depends, again, it depends on the sector and the company and how, what's your style, if you're active or passive, you know, if you like quant or if you like more actively managed sort of a hands-on portfolios. But I, what I think is very important is that when you start looking at the company on any level, uh, for evaluation on the ESG side, um, search for results, search for yeah. word, just look at the results. So company has policies, principles, all the nice pictures, children laughing. We are happy, you know, you know, uh, environmental responsibility, blue skies, <laughs> all of these things. But actually try to figure out what, how, how concrete are the results. Look at the results over time. And I used to look at the three years back, you know, when I, when I analyze company, I don't just don't look at 2020. I look at 2018 and 19 and 20 to get the sense of how much the company has moved over time. And also what kind of results are they disclosing over time? But that gives you a bit of a sense where they're going. Yeah. Um, and also I think ask questions, you know, it's like, uh, the companies are not, uh, some, most European companies, American companies, different, it's a different ball game because you yeah. email to a box inbox somewhere, and then maybe yeah. somebody will answer European companies actually quite good responding. 
Yeah. So if it's European the market, you're looking at just, you know, ask questions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I second that for sure. You rightfully are concerned that we're moving so slow when it comes to ESG. And I think that's the big frustration that especially the younger generation is really feeling uh, already. And that we can, of course, also feel the impact of already. The If I look at the research when it comes to not climate science, but the social aspect of it, um, a notion that has been coming up more often lately is that it's not really about climate denial, but more about climate obstruction. Yeah. So what, what, why are we moving so slow? What's, what's the blocker? You know, it's, it's, and going back to your evolutionary, revolutionary sort of aspect, you have to understand, and this is something that it's that every time in the societies, in these cycles that we go through, when you are moving from one, basically the system that you operate is not optimal anymore. It needs to change. There's of course, resistance in the system because the, the, the change may incur that the, the different power structures will look differently. So, yeah. and, and it's sort of an embedded resistance in it. I think the obstruction is not necessarily always because we don't like the climate or we don't, we don't think it's a climate change. Obstruction is yes, we know it's a climate change, but can we afford to change? Yeah. You understand what I mean? Yeah. So it is, it's sort of a deeper, the, 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 <laughs> the reason is much deeper than just, a, I think most of the people understand that, you know, climate emergency we are facing. Climate change will have a tremendous impact, but people usually think it's not going to hit me because yeah. I'm going to be fine. Maybe my neighbor, but I'm going to, you know, make it. So yeah. I think we are in a, in a, in a space where you can, it's almost like a, we're polishing, uh, you know, stairs and on Titanic and we think it's fine because it looks good and we've got the new polish and, and all of that. But in the same time, uh, I think it, there is a big difference in, uh, perception on, on the impact in Western world, like where we are in, in Northern Europe, yeah. uh, and uh, let's say Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, you know, uh, China, parts of Africa, where the poor people will be affected by this alone. And this is another angle that we didn't touch upon, which I think it's relevant to take up in, in this ESC discussion. ESC toolbox in the financial industry has uh, a purpose and purpose is to make things better. It's not to make things look better. Yep. It's to actually make things better, to improve things. That's the purpose. Otherwise, there's no, 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 no place there. Yeah, yeah. Touching upon the Bangladesh topic. So following your socials, you seem to have a very, I mean, obviously you're Swedish, but you also seem to have a very specific relationship with H&M. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you for taking that one up. I do. And I, I give you a story, actually, story not too many times, but... Back in 2010, I started a, a group of, of family of funds for Nordea called STARS. And these are the, one of the most successful ESG funds today on the market in, I think, globally in some aspects. And, uh, I, uh, gave, um, H&M a benefit of a doubt. So I, I started investing in them based on ESG, based on the promises and the, you know, the, almost like a, a roadmap that provided me. Years later, I evaluated these things and I've got more and more depressed and more and more frustrated and more and more irritated because these improvements were actually not happening. And the company was completely sort of ignoring the fact that, that, uh, uh, they are invested, at least from our perspective, from, from sort of an ESG, from my, uh, ESG view. And in the Sweden at the time, when I did this, 
it was almost like I gave them a stamp of approval, if you understand what I mean. Mm -hmm. yep. So, so when the, when this kind of a, a, a ethical profile that I was gave them a stamp of approval, they could sort of go on and do their thing. Yep. Uh, and basically our sort of a dialogue has been going on since 2010. So now you can, you know, it's about 12 years now, um, talking about the same things and I don't see any improvements. And the, yeah. the, the fact is that the, the business model of fast fashion is not sustainable, will never be sustainable. And I don't yeah. have a problem with the companies coming to us saying that, look, we run a fast fashion business. We know it's not sustainable. We do it for the shareholders and we want to make money. I don't have a problem with that. But yeah. if you come to me and said, yes, we are fast fashion, but we also very sustainable and we are doing yeah. all of these things and they're actually not true. Yeah. It's sort of a, it doesn't fit in, you know, it doesn't yeah. look good. And this is another thing that it's relevant from, from uh, EC perspective. Uh, there are some companies in the world, so, you know, huge companies, H&M is one of them, yeah. where you actually cannot find anybody, any body or organization or firm that can truly evaluate how these companies are sustainable or not, because yeah. they are so huge. And they have, there are so many parameters you have to take into account. So you basically rely on their self-reporting. And if you do that, everything is fine. We have yep. already reached all the Paris targets and we can of just course. rest. Yeah. <laughs> Those reports always look amazing. Eh? Like, yeah, like yeah. I compared sustainability reports and I really actually, like I find that the American tech companies, that's really where almost state of the art when it comes to sustainability reporting, I find if I look at like Apple and Tesla, like that's, yeah. I mean, because they know that everyone talks about these kind of cobalt issues and everything, yeah. right? So they, they feel like they're under scrutiny, but the, the fashion companies haven't really lived up to that yet, I must say. I mean, okay, I must say like supply chain transparency, um, especially on the social side. Of course, it's hard to track than just like where do my raw materials come from, but come on, you know, you're billion dollar companies, you should be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. How, what's your feeling that, I mean, H&M, of course, huge company, but at the same time, we also see ultra fast fashion companies pop out of the ground left, right. So I think yes. Shine is like a big one right now. That's even faster. And it's, it's, I mean, it's just insane looking at it from a sustainability. Like, what's your yeah. take on that? No, but I think you will see the, uh, it's called in Swedish of art, you know, separate arts of these, you know, uh, crazy, mm -hmm. uh, type of, of business models that are popping up that are super fast in terms of the fast fashion and all of that, but the environmental impact of these companies yeah. is just enormous and it's yeah. just a resource. You know, the depletion of the resources that is mind blowing. And this is yeah. what comes, I mean, this is also what the, th and this goes back to the earlier discussion you and I had on, on the economic model versus, you know, how do we operate that? And then what is the sustainability, true sustainable financial economic model? They are not necessarily compatible. So we are trying to put, you know, 45 size foot into a 41 size, uh, in a shoe and it's not always easy. Yeah. Yeah. So naturally, given your, your background, it's easy at parties, at dinners, easy to have, al always have depressed discussions. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you're sick of it by now, but what do you talk about when people ask you about your job and you don't want to ruin the atmosphere? No, I just say I'm a plumber. <laughs> if I don't know them. No, but if they ask me about my job, I, I would rather not talk about that. I'll talk about, you know, we can talk about football. Football is a fantastic thing to talk about. Uh, both okay. German and English football and French football and Italian football is always a nice discussion and a conversation. And we are sometimes, uh, you can use, uh, 
a completely different uh, parts of the reality to to uh, get to people to understand that yeah. uh, climate change and working in the financial industry is like you know it's like a football it's like yeah. a boxing match you go up and you box every yeah. day and you get beaten basically last 10 15 years but you still go up and fight yeah yeah it's not depressing look i think it's people are I'm not going around, I'm not depressed, but I can, you know, being angry and disappointment and frustrated from time to time because things are not moving. It's actually a good emotional thing, but <laughs> I'm not, I'm not feeling depressed because I think we can make it. I, I think we can make a difference and people working in the companies are people. They are human yeah. beings. They, they understand and feel and they can change. But I think it's also about the, the fact that we need to keep telling the, you know, reminding people what's important. And that's the, that's the, that's a, probably a deeper discussion. Yeah. I want to end this conversation on a positive note. What gives you hope? Young people, definitely. Uh, not only because I have a children in that age, but even younger than they are. I think the young, young people with their, you know, uncompromising belief in future and their place in the future. I think that's really, really good. I think I am positive on a lot of tech technology development side that people are seeing and trying to sort of uh, find the solutions. I'm seeing positive things in uh, developing countries that are really struggling and, and trying to make that shift in a sustainable way. So there's a lot of positive things in the world, but I think on a systemic level, we need to be, uh, we need to keep the pressure. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry, the book, your book, The Money Tree is available on Amazon. And yes. ideally also in your local <laughs> bookshop. Yeah, 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 it is. It's, <laughs> it's, you can buy it, you can order it on Amazon. We have a, I have written a book before this and we actually own in Swedish, but, uh, I, it, we had a very good experience with the book. Book has been, you know, uh, best selling on Amazon for a number of weeks in the U S it's, it's, uh, it seems to be a great interest. So, uh, and we like, it's not complicated. It's very easy to read. So I, I hope people yeah. find it interesting. Sasha, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And uh, I hope we'll talk again in two years time. And I tell you all the good things that have happened. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. I thank hope you. So. Thanks, Sasha. Thank you for joining us in the Open IC. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also leave a review. That really helps. And connect with us for feedback on fintalent.io. See you next time.